the whole point for the book of Jude, it's found in verse 3. Jude says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Again, Jude's desire was to write to the believers about their common salvation, how they all had salvation in common. They all came through salvation by common means. There's only one way, one man that we can be saved, right? That's in Christ Jesus. So he wanted to teach on that, but instead he says, the Holy Spirit pressed this upon me to encourage each and every one of us to contend earnestly for the faith. And we looked at that last week. This is not just an encouragement to pastors or teachers or elders, but this is an encouragement and an exhortation to every single believer. If you're here this morning and you believe you're going to heaven when you die, this encouragement is for you to contend earnestly. That's constantly tired, weary, that we're fighting earnestly for the faith, fighting for the word of God and what it represents, the foundational truths that we find in scripture. We can turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4 before we dive into Jude. And here in 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul writes something very similar to his son in the faith, Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 through 5. Here Paul says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it's received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Again, Paul warns his son in the faith, Hey, Timothy, in latter times, I think those are the the days we're living in, in latter times some will depart from the faith. Some will leave the foundational truths that we find in God's word, and instead they will give heed to deceiving spirits, doctrines of demons, hypocrisy to the point that their own conscience is seared telling people they can't get married telling people they can't eat certain foods creating a dead religion for people and again we're living in those days we'll start in first timothy at the end of the teaching we'll end in second timothy how we need to know this is the day and age that we're living in there are more and more so-called churches saying hey at the end love wins So no one really goes to hell because God loves everybody too much that they'd go to hell. Again, that's a lie. That's departing from the faith. Some saying there's other ways to salvation, other ways to heaven. Departing from the faith. Some saying, hey, these sins are okay. It's 2021. Those sins were not okay in biblical times. But now there's a new set of rules. That's departing from the faith. But now we dive into Jude. We'll read verse 8 through 11. It tells us, likewise also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, 
when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know, and whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. We saw last week, Jude likes to give us examples in threes, and he continues to do so. We finished off last Sunday in verse 8, right? He says, likewise, these dreamers, what do they do? They defile the flesh, they reject authority, and they speak evil of dignitaries, right? He calls them dreamers. Their, their minds are up in the clouds, They're not in touch with reality, with what's really going on today in the life of the believer. I was watching a quick uh, clip on a a church and on a ministry, and this lady is speaking just a bunch of nonsense. And I know it's hard for some of us to get to church. Some of us, we got to get the kids up early, right? We got to get them all ready. And I could not imagine, after doing all the work of getting to church, to have to sit down and listen to some nonsense like that. I just couldn't imagine it. And there are these false teachers, these apostates, these people that are leaving the faith, leaving the word of God, and they are dreamers. They have no touch with reality. They're just speaking a bunch of fluff that has nothing to do with reality. And now what do they do? They defile the flesh. They give more reason and excuse to come into sin. They give more reason, more excuse to do things that the world does. They give more reason, more excuse why their freedoms in Christ allow them to partake in such things that we would see as evil or taboo. The second thing they do, they reject authority. The greatest authority for us today, biblically, is God's word. And there are those who reject the word of God, that it's inerrant, it's powerful, it's the actual word of God. And there are many false teachers today that they discredit God's word. They're trying to say that this isn't really what it means, but it means something else. It's 2021, so these sins are not sins. They reject the authority of God's word. And then finally, they speak evil of dignitaries. They speak evil of those that God has placed in authority. They speak bad about other pastors. They speak bad about other teachers. Pastors that have been steady Eddie for 5 years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, These false teachers, these apostates, they're speaking garbage about them. In verse 9, we'll see a comparing and contrasting of Michael the archangel and how he battles versus these apostates, these liars, these people that have left the faith. It tells us Michael the archangel in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses dared not bring against him a reviling accusation. But he said, the Lord rebuke you. It's interesting, some Christians, they like some weird and obscure scriptures, and that's their like favorite portions of scriptures, right? They hear about a battle between the archangel Michael and Satan, and they're like, oh, this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It's just interesting, right? You can write down Deuteronomy 34, 5 through 7. There it tells us that God himself buried Moses in a place where no one could find him until the moment that, that Deuteronomy chapter 34 was written. Why were they probably battling over the body of Moses? Satan, knowing the 
heart of the nation of Israel knew that if he could get the body of Moses, he could set up a shrine where the nation of Israel would be worshiping the dead body of Moses rather than worshiping the risen Savior and the Lord and Jesus Christ. Even today in Israel, it's bittersweet. You go and it's so incredible, so amazing, the land which Jesus walked in, but they also do things for profit. And they make a shrine basically about everything and anything. They make up shrines, right? This is the rock that Jesus sat on when he was bored, right? And they'll make a shrine. They'll make a temple. They'll put a falafel stand outside, right? They'll put camel rides. And it's, it's bittersweet because you have these deep biblical places. And then it's like half biblical places, half tourist Disney World battling at the same time. And this is more than likely, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly why, but this is more than likely why Satan wanted the body of Moses. We also know at the Mount of Transfiguration that Moses' body, in a sense, was resurrected for a brief moment when Moses and Elijah were there standing next to Jesus as well. But what's the true reason that Jude is bringing this up? He's telling us that we need to follow the archangel Michael's example. We do need to contend with the enemy, and we do need to contend with false teachers, but we should not be losing it with them. We should not be hitting, it, hitting them below the belt. We shouldn't be making fun of them or foaming at the mouth or reviling against them. Instead, we need to stand strong in the Lord and stand strong in the Word of God. We need to be that calm warrior in the battle, knowing that our strength in this battle only comes from the Lord. Again, that's where we need to stand. There's some people that are obsessed with the devil There are some Christians that they're obsessed with demons and they're obsessed with the wrong thing. There's people in the middle of their prayers, they start talking to Satan. We don't talk to that guy. That's not what we're doing here in prayer. Right? They're praying, Lord, thank you for this, thank you for this. And all of a sudden it's like, and the devil, we rebuke you. And they start just going off on the devil, talking to him. We don't do that. We don't find that in scripture. We should stay away from that. The archangel Michael himself, that's not even what he did. And now we know, are human beings and angels on the same playing field? No, right? Not at all. And now are the angels and the archangel Michael on the same playing field? No, the archangel Michael's uh, on top of them even. And it's interesting, one commentator, he mentioned how Satan and Jesus, they're not on the same playing field whatsoever. Right? If you're like me, you like having a giant battle at the end of a movie and it's so close and ah, it's awesome and right at the end the, the, the hero wins and that's not how the end of ages ends. There's a battle between Jesus and Satan and it's almost anticlimactic. How does Jesus defeat Satan forever? He just talks to him and that's it. He just says it's over, it's done with and with his words that's it, Satan's done with. So again, the person that's truly on the same level as Satan would be the archangel Michael. And now he doesn't start hurling insults at Satan. He doesn't talk about how he's going to bind Satan and rebuke you. Satan. No, he just says, the Lord rebuke you. He stands on the foundation of God. And that's what we need to do as well. Don't be obsessed with Satan. Don't be obsessed with the demons. Be obsessed with Jesus. That's who we need to be obsessed with. We need to stand strong in the Lord and stand strong in the word of God. One final note before the true application here is listening to a teaching. He said, man, if Satan ever knocks on my front door, I want Jesus to answer the door. If Satan knocks on the back door, I want Jesus to go answer that door too. He tries to creep in a window. I say, hey, Jesus, there's somebody scary out there. You go deal with him. 
Again, when in doubt, we look to our Lord as our perfect father. As a perfect father. I'm a dad. I'm not a perfect dad. I think I'm an okay dad, right? I have three little kids. I don't want them answering the door to strangers. I tell them, hey, don't answer the door. Don't talk to the person on the other side of the door. Get away from the door. Let me answer the door. And oftentimes we get into trouble because we think we can fight toe-to-toe with the enemy. And that's a bunch of lies. But why did Jude really put this here? David Guzik, he makes a great point. He says, significantly, Michael, the archangel, dared not to bring a reviling accusation. Michael did not mock or accuse the devil. God has not called us to judge the devil or condemn the devil or mock the devil or accuse the devil, but we are to battle against him in the name of the Lord. Again, comparing and contrasting to these apostates and how they speak evil of dignitaries, they reject authority, the archangel Michael himself had such a respect and reverence for the Lord that he would not speak evil of the devil himself. This is very similar to David. He had the same respect and reverence for God that in dealing with the sociopath and terrible king that King Saul had become, he would not touch the Lord's anointed. Now we're going to see here later on, we have to be careful when there are people around us talking garbage about pastors and ministries. That's not what we are supposed to do. 2 Timothy chapter 2, we can turn there real quick. And in 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul gives us more insight on how we should deal with these messed up doctrines, these false teachers, these false prophets, and how we should not deal with these false prophets, false doctrines, and false teachers. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 23, it tells us, avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Again, our goal should be to protect the flock, protect the sheep, protect the little ones. But our goal is also to try to win over anyone else who may be watching. Our goal is perhaps if the Lord wills and desires and that person is willing to humble themselves, we would be able to win them over instead of just winning the argument. That's our mindset. That's the mindset we're to have when we're talking with people. And then we got to know when it's just a, a foolish and ignorant dispute, right? Can God make a rock so big he can't carry? I'm not going to go there, right? Let's not even talk about this. This is, this is just foolishness, right? People, they want to bring up conflict. They want to bring up arguments just to generate strife. We should avoid that. Stay away from that. Again, as believers, we shouldn't be fighting out in the open, right? On, in the public square, in the social media square. Two believers shouldn't be fighting and arguing there. Again, it's just a bad look. I don't know if you've ever been there. You're arguing with your spouse and someone opens the door, surprise, right? And you're, like, you're, you're shocked, right? You're there fighting with your kids. You're screaming at them in the backseat of the car. And then Pastor Raz pulls up next to you with his big smile, right? And, and just waves and, oh, the humility, right? Again, when we're speaking with someone, 
a false teacher, a false doctrine, we should speak to them the truth in love. You don't know who else is hearing in another cubicle, and they're watching to see how do you act, how do you respond. Verse 10, again, in contrast to the archangel Michael and how he dealt with the enemy, these people, they speak evil of whatever they do not know. And whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. Again, in contrast to the archangel Michael not bringing a reviling accusation against the devil himself, these men speak evil of things they do not even know or comprehend. They're talking bad about pastors and about church decisions that they can't even comprehend. They don't understand, but they're talking garbage. Jude compares them to brute beasts. They have no spirituality, but instead they are fueled by carnality. And right, Jude told us they've crept into the church. People that are coming to church, people that are serving in church, people that are elders and deacons and overseers and even pastors that have no spiritual life. All of their decisions, all of their choices are carnal. Whatever a beast feels like doing, that's what they do. And it's the same with these men. Commentator Oliver Green, he says, How ironic that when men should claim to be knowledgeable, they should actually be ignorant. When they think themselves superior to the common man, they should actually be on the same level as an animal. And be corrupted by the very same practices in which they seek liberty and self-expression. Again, you have pastors, churchgoers, church leaders saying, hey, I'm free to do this. And it's not that they're free to do that. It's that their carnal desire is telling them, you have to do this. And like an animal, they go to whatever they feel like doing. Jude in verse 4, right, it tells us ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness. In verse 7 and verse 8, it likened these men to Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 7, the cities around them in similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example. Verse 8, likewise, these dreamers defile the flesh. Again, we need to be careful that we're not making excuses and room for sin, but instead we're looking more and more like Christ. Verse 11, it gives us three examples of these men, three old school, Old Testament examples. We see Cain, Balaam, and Korah. And it says, Woe to them, for they've gone the way of Cain. They've run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit and perished in the rebellion of Korah. The first man we see here is Cain. And Cain struggled. Cain's sin was self-righteousness disobedience to the Lord and this self-righteousness and disobedience to the Lord led to envy and hatred towards the righteous. If you would, we could turn to the book of Genesis chapter 4, first book in the Bible. Should be pretty quick and easy to turn there, but in Genesis chapter 4, we see the tale of these two brothers. Not the tale, but the history of these two brothers. Two brothers probably more similar than any twins. Two brothers that probably shared the DNA better than anybody else ever in history, right? You have Adam and Eve. Eve is pulled right out of Adam, out of his rib. Again, same DNA, and now they have their two sons. It's not like they were 
bad examples walking around the earth. There's no secular music that Cain was listening to and jamming to hard rock. And Abel was listening to classical and country music. And that's why he was good, right? It's not like Cain was hanging around the bad crowd and he was with all the athletes. And yet, you know, Abel, he's a super nice, good kid. And he hangs out with the safety patrol. And that's why they, they turned out so different. No. Same family. Same parents. And yet we see them so drastically different because Abel was humble enough to accept God's word and went to God in faith. And Cain was filled with his own pride and self-righteousness that he would, in a sense, turn his hand against what the Lord had said. Genesis chapter 4, verse 4 through 8, it tells us, Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Now again, imagine Cain here. Cain, he's about to sin in a terrible way. And God himself speaks to him and warns him about what he's about to do. And yet that's exactly what the Holy Spirit does for each and every one of us. The Holy Spirit speaks to us, right? That still small voice, hey, don't go out with those people tonight. Hey, it's getting late. Close the laptop, go to bed, turn off the TV, change the channel. Don't go out. Don't. The Holy Spirit warns us. And the Holy Spirit, God himself, is warning Cain, hey, sin wants to rule over you. But hey, if you're willing to humble yourself and allow me to rule over you, I'll be a good master to you. It's, it's one or the other. Either sin's going to be your master and it's going to own you and destroy you, or you're going to allow God to be your master and he's going to care for you and love you and protect you. Verse 8, what happens to Cain? Cain, he doesn't follow the Lord. Instead, he takes his brother away to the field. He speaks with Abel, his brother. And it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Again, oftentimes this can happen with us. We're at a similar spiritual state as another brother or sister. We make bad decisions and we reap bad consequences and we bear bad fruit. Our brother and sister, they made good decisions. They're bearing good fruit and more blessings from the Lord. And we can get envious and jealous and nasty towards them when they're doing nothing but being obedient to the Lord. We have to be careful that that heart and that mindset, that self-righteousness of Cain does not creep into our hearts. So why did God respect Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's? Right? Some people say because it was a blood sacrifice that God, he likes meat and not vegetables. I, I kind of like that idea, right? Lamb chops are incredible, right? Lollipops are incredible. But that's not the true reason why. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 4, very simple verse. It says, by faith. Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. You see, Abel, he offered his sacrifice according to God's word and by faith. That's all it takes. We have to be obedient to what God's word says, and we have to come to him in faith. Faith alone and the grace alone and Christ alone. That's how, we, that's how we're saved. That's how we get to heaven. That's how we mature and grow as believers. Cain was sacrificing according to his own works. 
I've worked hard enough on this. I've sweated hard enough for this. I sowed, I tilled, I pulled the weeds, I watered, and now my sacrifice is good enough to let me be good and near to God. Cain was disobeying God's commandment for sacrifice. For all of history, mankind has been trying to find any other way to heaven except through Jesus Christ. Right? We look for any other way, any other religion. I can be good enough, right? I can pay enough money. I can clock in enough hours in kids' ministry, and that's going to lead me to heaven. I can have frequent flyer miles at Calvary Chapel, Miami, and that's going to get me into heaven. Right? You can write down Matthew 26, verse 39. Here you have Jesus, the perfect Son of God, praying and talking to God the Father, the perfect Father. And here Jesus cries out to him and says, Oh, my Father... If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Again, family, there's no other way to heaven. There's no other way to be right with God. There's no other way for our sins to be cleansed from us, for guilt to be removed from us, but through the blood and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And there's dead religion. There's dead man's religion all over And this leads to death. This leads to hell. There's only one way which man can be saved, and that's through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone. John 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Again, Cain's self-righteousness led to him being rejected by God. Seeing Abel being respected by God led to more envy and more hatred, which led to Cain murdering his own brother. 1 John 3 verse 12, it gives us more insight into this. It says, Cain who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. Right? That, that can creep into our heart. We see another person walking in the truth of God's word and growing in God and doing well. And our sinful heart becomes envious, becomes angry. Hatred creeps in, right? And we want to do them harm. Cain did not come to God through faith and obedience of what God prescribed. Instead, Cain wanted to come to God on his own terms, on his own work, based on his own theories, based on his own experiences. And those things don't matter. We can only come to God through what the Bible says. Hey, your experiences, they matter to you. They're important, but they're not more important than God and God's word. Just because you have a bad experience with this, with that, or the third, does not mean that's the same for everything in that sphere, right? I think every single one of us, we've had at least one bad experience at a restaurant, right? Do you just stop going to restaurants altogether? Never again, right? I'm sure many of us, we've had a bad experience with a car, right? Our car accident, it's broken down, a flat tire, overheating. Do we just swear off cars? I'm never getting in a car ever again, right? Going to walk around everywhere or go on my bike. No, not at all, right? Our experiences, they don't trump God and his word. His word stands true. David Guzicki points out many Christians are afraid of secular humanism or atheism or of the world itself. But dead religion is far more dangerous and sends more people to hell than anything else. 
These certain men were in the way of Cain, which is the way of a dead religion. Again, I pray here, you're here this morning not because your parents are going to be happy or your spouse is going to be happy or your kids are going to be happy. I pray you're here this morning because you want to do right on your relationship with Jesus Christ. Anything else is just a dead man's religion. Now he speaks of Balaam, right? Three different men, so different. Balaam was a prophet in the book of Numbers as a nation of Israel is coming out of Egypt, about to go into the promised land. And Balaam's desire was for riches and honor and fame no matter the cost. If it cost God's people, if it cost Balaam God's favor, or even if it costed Balaam his relationship with God. Matthew chapter 18 verse 6 is a great warning to us. Great warning to anyone in leadership or talking about the Bible. Matthew 18 verse 6 it says, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. This isn't a popular verse on refrigerators or the backgrounds of phones, right? Or anything like this. But God takes his people serious. He takes the little ones serious, whether it's new and young believers or little kids. If you cause one of them to sin, it's no messing around. And within Scripture, we see this term, filthy lucre, four times in the pastoral epistles. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2, Peter tells us, he says, Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly. Not for filthy lucre, but for a ready mind. And this mindset can quickly creep into church. We say, hey, I'm willing to serve God, but what are you going to pay me? What are you going to give me? Right? Sometimes in churches they say, hey, you know, how much do you pay for me to serve in this place or that place? Right? There are many churches, they pay their worship team. They pay their worship leaders. Maybe you, when you talk with your coworkers or friends, you say, hey, I got to serve on Sunday. They say, how much do they pay you at your church? Right? It's a sad day that we live in. Amanda, she studied music in, in college, and one of her professors says, hey, I got plenty of church gigs for you. These are good church gigs. They pay you real good, right? And it's just a sad place we live in. Right? Hopefully we don't start serving because we say, hey, what do, you, what do you got for me, right? You got some gas cards. You see how expensive gas is. You got some gas cards, right? Is there a free breakfast burrito or something for me? What do you got for me in the kids' ministry, right? How many goldfish do I get? How much apple juice can, can I consume each Sunday? And this can creep into us. Because if there's a certain price in our minds and in our hearts to serve God, then there's probably also a price in our hearts and minds to walk away from God as well. If we're in it just for the money, we're in a bad place. In Numbers 22, Numbers 28 and 29, and Numbers 31, uh, you see the life of Balaam. Balaam is a prophet. God warns him. There's a king at the time, Balak. And God warns Balaam, hey, you shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. So the first time Balak sends these princes to him, and Balaam says, no, I'm not going to go with you. I'm not going to follow you. I'm going to stay here. But what does the king Balak do? He sends more princes. He sends more money. He sends more honor. And then he promises Balaam, hey, if you do whatever I tell you to do, I'm going to honor you greatly. And what happens? Balaam goes to follow him. Because there was a certain price in his mind when he was willing to give up on the Lord. There was more honorable people. There was bigger promises. There was a bigger influence. And that crept into the mind and heart of Balaam. 
Family, I, I ask you, is there a certain price where you're willing to disobey the Lord? Is there a certain man, this girl's just too beautiful, I, I can't let go of her. This guy's too handsome, this guy makes too much money, he doesn't want to go to church Sundays, that's fine with me. What's your price? Is it your cute kids, right? They're just too cute. How, how can I stand before, how, how can I say no to them, right? What is your price? Balaam, he had a price. God warns Balaam not to go. He still ends up going. Then there's an angel ready to kill Balaam, but God loves him enough that God touches his donkey and lets his donkey talk to him and warn him. Imagine if you were about to sin against the Lord and your dog started talking to you, right? First and foremost, I think most of us would have a heart attack, right? Rescue would take us. We think we'd be dreaming or someone slipped something into our drink. But what does Balaam do? He starts arguing with the donkey that's talking to him. That's how his mind was so set on wanting that money, on wanting the gold, on wanting the honor. He starts arguing with the donkey and the donkey says, dude, there's an angel in front of you with a sword ready to kill you. And God opens Balaam's eyes and he sees the angel. He says, God, if you don't want me to go, I won't go. But Balaam still goes. Balaam goes and he knows he can't curse the nation of Israel. So he blesses them four times. But Balaam turns to the Balak and says, hey, I can't curse the nation of Israel. But if you want them to be cursed, send in some of your young girls. Send in some of your idols. And then God himself will have to curse the nation of Israel. Again, Balaam was a prophet for profit. He just wanted the money. He just wanted the honor. He just wanted the fame. He just wanted to be puffed up. In Numbers 31, verse 8, it tells us, Balaam, the son of Beor, they killed with the sword. Because through the counsel of Balaam, the nation of Israel trespassed against the Lord. Balaam's greed and covetousness led him to lead other people into sin. Balaam's love for money led him to disobey the Lord. And not even God, an angel with a sword, or even a talking donkey could stop his sinful heart from going after his desires. we got to be careful that this doesn't creep into our heart. But we see this in church ministries. It's all about money at the end of the day. They'll tell people whatever they want to hear as long as they get a bigger crowd and more money for their Rolexes or their expensive shoes or the next plane, the next Bentley. They don't care. They use the people of God. They'll even lead them into sin. This isn't that big of a sin. This isn't that bad. God doesn't care about that. Leading God's people into sin. Remember Judas. He betrayed the Son of God. Three years seeing miracles. Three years seeing Jesus every day of his life. Seeing the perfect love he had. The perfect care. The perfect humility. And yet he was willing to betray the Son of God for 30 pieces of silver. Again, we have to be careful. These false teachers, they don't care about God. They don't care about the people of God. They just want the money and the fame. Korah, the last person here mentioned. Korah, this was a Levite, one of the chosen people of God, one of the tribe that was closest to the heart of God. And Korah's pride led him to not be content with what God had called him to do and who God had called him to be. And because he wasn't content with what God had called him to be, he began to try to undermine the authority that God had placed over Israel in Moses himself. This is found in Numbers chapter 16. It tells us that Korah, he rises up with his posse. He gets 250 leaders of the congregation. And now he says this word, these words in verse 3. He says, you take much upon yourselves for all the congregation is holy. 
Every one of them. And the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourself above the assembly of the Lord? So when Moses heard it, Moses fell on his face. Right? This sounds nice. This sounds good, verse 3. Hey, Moses, hey, you're taking up too much for yourself. All the congregation of holy, we can all hear God. We're all the same. Why are you exalting yourself above the assembly of the Lord? You see, Moses fell on his face because he knew God's judgment was coming. And we have to be careful. We can come up to church authority and leadership and we can begin to want to fight with them and battle with them when God is the one who has placed them there. And it's because we are not content with where we are at in our walk and relationship with God. Korah, he was a Levite. He was still receiving tremendous blessing from God. But Korah thought he deserved more. And we have to be careful when we're serving the Lord and we think we deserve more. Right? Maybe you're there in kids' ministry and you're sick and tired of the, the dirty diapers and you say, I deserve more, right? Maybe you're there in the parking lot. No one ever listens to me. I tell them to park here, they park over there. I deserve more, right? And that can creep into our hearts. And that pride only leads to destruction. It leads to us rebelling against the Lord and thinking we can do better than God. We think we can do better than the authority God has placed there. I don't know why God has put me here. All I know is that God has put me here. That's the only thing I know. But I don't know why. I don't deserve it. But as long as I'm here, I'm going to protect the flock. I'm going to be obedient to God's word. That's what God has called me to. That's what God has called the church leadership to. So what does Moses do? God tells Moses, hey, tell Korah to gather all his posse together. Moses, you gather all your posse together so they're all there the next day. Again, the, just the pride and arrogance of Korah. And then God whispers, God tells Moses, hey, back up because I'm going to swallow Korah and now everybody with him. I'm going to swallow them whole. And God opens the earth and swallows all of these men whole. Again, Korah rebelled against Moses and the authority God had placed over Israel. We have to be careful with this. We're going to see later on the, the heart of these apostates, the heart of these false teachers, is that they are murmurers. They are complainers. Be careful if there's someone and they got your ear and they like to whisper to you how this person at church is bad and this church person is bad and this pastor, this pastor's wife, and they're just whispering in your ear. Biblically, if someone has a problem with someone in leadership or in eldership, they should come with another brother or sister and talk with them directly. That should be your first question. Hey, you got this problem with pastor so-and-so, sister so-and-so, brother so-and-so. Have you spoken with them face-to-face? -face? Or are you just venting? Are you just sinning? Are you just murmuring, Right? And if you, if you tell it to them that quickly, I'm sure they'll stop gossiping to you. But again, we need to cut that. That only leads to problems and divisions. In verse 12, it tells us, These are spots in your love feast, while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. And then here it gives us a few word pictures. It tells us they are clouds without water, carried about the wind. They are late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. They are raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Right? It starts off by saying that they are spots in your love feast. Some scholars, they go back and forth in what this means, but more likely than not, what it's speaking of here is hidden rocks or hidden reefs. And what he's saying here is that the true heart of these men and women is below the surface. And if you follow them, 
it will lead to shipwreck. Right? Verse 4, it tells us that these men have crept in unnoticed. They don't tell you that they're an apostate, right? They don't tell you that they want to pull you away from the faith. They don't have a t-shirt that says, hey, I want to go against God's word. That's not how they come in. They creep in, but their end is dangerous. They promise all the things that they're going to do for God. They promise how they want to serve the body, but they have no fruit in their lives. They produce no rain for the family of God. We have to be careful with that. Pastor Jim Gallagher, he said, sorry if, I, if you're offended by this, but he says, like, man, having this incredible agape meal, right? Having this incredible uh, Thanksgiving breakfast and then someone bringing a bunch of liver to eat in the middle of the breakfast, right? And if you love liver, hey, that's between you and the Lord. We love you. We care about you, right? But just because you love liver doesn't mean we have to love liver, okay? That's fine. You love it. That's fine. All the liver is for you, right? But if it's in the middle of the feast, why is this here? Why are we eating this for breakfast? Why is this here, right? And it's just a spot. It's a blemish in the middle of what God is doing in the family of God. And they have no fear. But what's their only desire? To serve themselves. These people get mad that people aren't serving them. These people come into church and expect everyone to serve them. Hey, why isn't so-and-so serving me? Why isn't so-and-so doing this for me? Hey, so-and-so, they didn't do this for me. Have to be careful with that mindset and that heart. Secondly, it says that they are clouds without water carried about by the winds. Not so much in our day and age, right? When we see dark clouds, we pray that it doesn't rain more often than not, right? But in this agricultural society, their lives depended on the rain, and when they, saw, when they saw clouds coming, they would pray. They would hope, Lord, please send rain because their livelihoods depended on it. In other words, they promise, but they do not deliver. They say they're going to serve the flock of God, but they never serve. And like a cloud, they're puffed up. They want to be seen by everybody. They want to be seen above everybody. And yet they do nothing to bless the flock of God. That's what these people do. Next, he calls them trees with no fruit and dead roots. You see, these men, these teachers, these ladies, they have no real attachment to the word of God. They are not abiding with Jesus. And I pray, right, that scripture reigns more and more true within our hearts. If we abide in him and he abides in us, we will bear much fruit. But what happens if we do not abide with him? We can do nothing. I pray that, that we sense that and we know that more and more, that if I'm not spending time in the Word of God, I can do nothing. My pride may think I'm fine. My arrogance may think I'm okay. But if I'm not abiding in God's Word, I can do nothing. And that, that's what I believe when it comes to Bible study, when it comes to church, that if we're not abiding in the Word of God, we can do nothing. And that's what it's telling us here. They're not attached to the word of God. And because they're not attached to the word of God, their ministry bears no fruit. We have to be careful with ministries like this. We have to be careful with people like this. Sometimes there's people trying to pull us into their ministry or pull us into, into their Bible study. And there's no fruit because it's not attached. It's not connected to the word of God. I pray that our church is always founded upon going through God's word Genesis to Revelation, all of it. But man, if you ever get called somewhere else, that should be the number one thing you're looking for in a church. What do they think about God's word? Not, hey, what does the kids' ministry look like? Oh, they got a giant mural of Jonah. That's the church we got to go to, right? What does their cafe look like? What kind of coffee machine do they have? 
They have a basketball ministry. This is the church I've been called to, right? I don't know. I don't know. They have gas cards. That's the church. That's the Lord told me. I got to go there. No. man. the only reason you should be in a church is because they're going through God's word. That should be the only reason. It says that they are raging waves foaming up, revealing their shame. We went on vacation this summer to Siesta Key, and they had some red tide, which is when the ocean is sort of purifying itself. There's some dump-offs up in Tampa, and they think that's why that was happening. And when you show up at the beach in the morning, it looks beautiful. There's barely any breeze. It looks beautiful. It looks gorgeous. Something would smell a little bit fishy, right? But it would look beautiful. Why? Because the tractors came early in the morning, and they scraped up all the dead fish, all the dead eels, all the dead puffer fish. So it looked beautiful. But as the day progressed and there was wind, especially if it was super windy, by the end of the day, if you'd show up there for sunset, there would be dead fish lined up on the shore for miles. And that's what it's telling us here. These men, these ministries, these false teachers, on the surface, they look fine. But over time, they will reveal their own shame. Isaiah 57, verse 20 and 21, it tells us, But the wicked are like the troubled sea. When it cannot rest, whose water casts up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Again, these men over time, their true motives and their true heart for the ministry will be revealed. And oftentimes, they do it to themselves. Right? In this season, we've seen church pastor after pastor after leader of each megachurch, right? sort of fall and crumble. And it's not like someone hired a, a private eye to investigate the church and find the intricacies of the church. It's not like they hired Inspector Gadget or Sherlock Holmes, right? And they find out what's going on. But over time, these men, their own shame, they reveal it themselves. Their marriages fall apart, then they talk about what was happening behind the scenes at the church. They were watching sports before church or different things like that. They reveal their own shame. Finally, they're like wandering stars. It says like they're like shooting stars. They have no real direction. And because they have no direction, they aren't leading the people in any particular direction. Yeah, they're hyping the people up. They're exciting the people week after week, month after month. They're hyping the people up, getting them excited. But for what? For what direction? Nobody knows. They're very bright. They bring a lot of attention to themselves. But then in a moment, in a flash, in an instant, they're gone and they disappear off the face of the universe, if you would. We have to be careful with ministries like this. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, it tells us that as believers, this is not what we should be going after. We shouldn't be going after the flash, the shooting star, right? If you would, the leather jacket wearing pastor. We shouldn't be going after these guys. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14. It tells us that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. And where does this come from? By the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But, verse 15, speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ Again, these men, they have their craftiness. They have their deceitful plotting. They have their trickery. They sit down. They hire firms. Say, how can we get people to come to church? 
What are hot topics? What are hot words? How does the sound need to sound? What does the atmosphere have to be like? What kind of experience do we have to have? There are churches that hire firms to tell them how to get more people to come in. But we as believers, we shouldn't be being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by every shooting star, by every flash in the pan, by every firework. The other idea here with shooting stars is to navigate in the ancient world, they would use instruments which would measure stars, measure planets, and that would tell them which way they were to go in the middle of the night. Now, what would happen if you're trying to see which way to go and you're following a shooting star? You're going to get lost. You're going to get shipwrecked because they show no direction. They are not steady. They are moving. They don't stop and they burn up and they're gone in a moment. Verse 13, it warns us of their end. It says, their end is reserved in the blackness of darkness forever. I don't know if you've ever gone caving or if you're feeling fancy, right? If you've ever gone spelunking, right? But I don't know if you've ever been in the cave and the guy decides to turn off all the lights. I don't know if you've ever been there, right? And it's just, it's it's the blackness of darkness. That's exactly what it is, right? Try to put your hand in front of your face, you can't see anything. Your eyes start seeing sparklies, right? And fireworks and weird stuff like that. It's darkness forever, couple scriptures, Jesus is the one that gives us these words. Matthew chapter 8, verse 12. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 22, verse 13. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him to outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 25, verse 30. And cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I think one of the reasons why Jude reminds us of this is so that we would not hype ourselves up about all the insanity out there, right? Just some advice. Don't watch TBN to hype yourself up to get mad at things going on, right? God knows their end. At the end, God sees them and God's going to deal with them. We need to be focused on Jesus. Be focused on his word. Be focused on God's people. Same thing, right, with the devils and the demons. Don't get obsessed with the devil. Don't get obsessed with the demons. Be obsessed with Jesus, with his word, and with God's people. Verse 14 through 15. Again, obscure verses that some believers get obsessed with. Verse 14. Now, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. How many of you know that there's a book called the Book of Enoch? How many of you do not know that there's a book called the Book of Enoch? That's good, don't worry. You don't need to know about the book of Enoch, right? The book of Enoch, chapter 1, verse 9, quotes this same scripture. So what does that mean? Does that mean that the whole apocrypha, is what they call it, is the true word of God? Quick question for you. If you've ever quoted someone, does that mean that you agree with everything that they say? You quote someone one time, does that now automatically mean you agree with everything that person has to say? I hope not, right? It's the same thing here with God's word. Yes, Jude is quoting the same words that the book of Enoch tells us, but David Guzik points out he's not giving us anything new. He's simply giving a vivid description of what the Bible already teaches. The Apostle Paul also quoted some non-biblical sources, at least in three different scriptures. Acts 17 verse 28, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 33, 
and Titus chapter 1, verse 12. This wasn't to proclaim a new truth or a different truth, but to support an already established biblical principle. Jude's quoting of the book of Enoch does not mean that the whole book of Enoch is inspired scripture. Only the portion that Jude quotes. In the same way, when Paul quoted a pagan poet, he didn't mean that the entire work of the poet was inspired by God. Again, just a little bit of sanctified common sense. We all need sanctified common sense, right? I hope you know common sense. It's not that common, right? I hope we all know that, right? We need sanctified common sense. We all need that, right? Jesus, he speaks about farming. He speaks about fishing. He speaks about the stars. He speaks about being in boats. He speaks about navigation. Does that mean now every almanac is all of a sudden the inspired word of God? Because it tells us about the truth of sowing and reaping? No. Just God is using that portion and he's quoting from there. So that's in case that's your hobby horse. We touched on that. What is this really all about? It's not about Enoch. This is about how God is one day going to sort the godly and the ungodly. It tells us one day right after the rapture, the Lord is going to come with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict the ungodly of their ungodly deeds done in an ungodly way, the harsh things which the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Family, at the end of age, at the end of days, there's going to be a separation. The godly versus the ungodly. The godly person is the one that has come to God in humility and in faith, saying, God, your word is above me. I want to stick with you. I want to be with you. I want to be in that friendship and relationship with you. The ungodly comes to God in their pride and says, God, I've got other ways to get to heaven. God, I'll follow some of you, but I'll sprinkle some other things on top. Ah, these portions of scripture, that's not right. That's not true. This is really what I want. And Psalm 17, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, it gives us the same clear delineation, right? Comparing and contrasting. Psalm 17, verse 13 through 15, the psalmist prays. He says, Arise, O Lord. Confront him and cast him down. Deliver my life from the wicked with your sword. With your hand from men, O Lord, from men of the world who have their portion in this life. Whose belly you fill with your hidden treasure. They are satisfied with children and leave the rest of their possessions for their babes. In contrast, verse 15, David says, As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. Family, what's your greatest satisfaction? What's your greatest satisfaction in this life? Is it the things of this world? The passing pleasures? A a paycheck, a new toy, a new position? Or is your satisfaction when you get to wake up in the likeness of your Lord, your Savior, your friend, your master? Because there's the great difference between the godly And the ungodly, the ungodly, their God is their own belly. They're like those brute beasts we spoke about earlier. Whatever they feel like, that's what they do. That's what brings them pleasure. That's what brings them joy. We as believers, what should bring us joy is being able to know our Lord and Savior more and more. And we know the only thing that's going to satisfy us is when we wake up in his likeness. When we wake up in glory, when we see him face to face, that is our greatest and only satisfaction. Finally, verse 16, it tells us a little bit more about these men. It tells us they are grumblers. They are complainers. They walk according to their own lusts. 
and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to, their, to gain advantage. Again, grumblers and complainers. The Bible never talks well about grumblers or complainers. Maybe I'm a bad dad, but I tell my kids, no one likes a whiner. I tell them all the time, no one likes a whiner. If you're just whining about everything, you're not going to have very many friends. You're not going to have very many people around you. What was one of the biggest problems with the nation of Israel in Egypt and coming out of Egypt? They murmured, murmur, murmur, murmur. They complained about everything. Charles Spurgeon, he says, you know the sort of people alluded to here. Nothing ever satisfies them. They are discontented even with the gospel. The bread of heaven needs to be cut into three pieces and served on dainty napkins or else they cannot eat it. And very soon their soul hates even this light bread. There's no way by which a Christian man can serve God so as to please them. They will pick holes in every preacher's coat. And if the great high priest himself were here, they would find fault with the color of the stones of his breastplate. Again, family, may we be careful about grumbling and complaining. It's a dangerous place to be. It's one of the hearts, it's one of the character traits of these apostate men and women. They grumble and they complain. They complain about leaders, they complain about this, they complain about that, and yet they do nothing to solve the actual problems in the church. Ask yourself that, right? We all know those abuelos that are great and incredible and they hang out with their grandkids all the time. And we know those abuelos, right? They just sit on the rocking chair and they just complain about everything, right? Back in my day, right? And they do nothing. They do nothing, right? May we be those that, man, we're in the fight. We're in the battle. We're strengthening and building up others. What's the next trait of these men? Again, given in threes, they walk according to their own lusts. They do whatever they feel like. They do whatever they desire, right? You, you show them the word of God. You show them the truth of God's word. And they respond, I just feel like whatever the case may be. They're going after their own lust. They are those brute beasts. Why does a pig run and jump in the mud and twirl around and swirl around? Because that's what it feels like doing, right? Why do monkeys at the zoo throw poop at people? That's what they feel like doing. And that's what they do. We as believers, we shouldn't be doing whatever we feel like. Whatever lust, whatever carnal imagination, whatever lust comes to mind, we need to stay true to the word of God. Finally, it tells us they mouth great swelling words, incredible teachings, incredible words, incredible insight, and they flatter people to gain advantage. They are professional butterers, right? They can butter people up. They can butter them up and they get them to feel so good. But what's the only reason? Is it to encourage people in the Lord? It's for advantage. What can I get from you? Man, I, I need some more networking. I need this job opportunity. I need to get this contract. I need this for the church. I need that. They're only flattering people to gain advantage. The other aspect of this, we can turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. I told you we'd start in 1 Timothy and end in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Not only do they butter people up to get their own desires, but they will butter people up. They will tell people what they want to hear as long as it leads to their advantage. As long as the church is growing, as long as there's more money, as long as there's more jets, more Rolexes, more expensive shoes, they'll tell you whatever you want to hear. And may we not be on the receiving end of that. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 through 5, it tells us, I charge you therefore... 
before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you, be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. I'm pretty sure these are the, this is the day and age we're living in, right? This is where we're at. People, they are heaping up for themselves teachers that tell them what they want to hear. Whether they want to hear more religiosity, they'll find teachers that will tell them all the old law, we have to do it today. If they're trying to find more liberalism, they'll find teachers and, and pastors and churches that say that their sins are okay. We deal with this as pastors. Say, hey, the Bible says this. You can't be going around telling people this in the church. But this church says you can. That's great. Maybe you should go to that church. Maybe that's where God has called you to. But this is what we're going to do is follow the word of God. Again, may we not be those that we're looking for people to feed us and give us our own desires. But may we be looking to those who preach the word. May we look to those who are convincing us, rebuking us, exhorting us with long suffering. That means with a lot of patience and with teaching. Again, guys, may that be us. And man, just to be in prayer. There are many people that we love and we care for that they're looking for those churches that will tell them whatever they want to hear. We should be praying for them. We should be trying to convince them, not in, again, that foaming at the mouth or rebuking them. No, in love and gentleness, trying to win them over. And again, just for us to be careful when murmuring creeps in, when arguing creeps in, with all these different character traits. I don't think any of us per se here are apostates. We're trying to leave the faith or lead people away from the faith. But many of those things, it can be ah, a little pierced from God's word and scripture telling us, hey, you got to work on these certain things.